On this official day when we celebrate the life of St. Patrick, not only should we celebrate by singing a few Irish songs, but it would probably do us well to turn our attention to a few of the many colorful Irish sayings that have been brought across the sea and given to us here in North America. I can't use all my favorites. <laughs> There's too much of that Irish mischief and profanity in all my favorites. The first truly Irish saying I ever heard was not by necessarily an Irishman, though my family is Scott Irish. It was about the Irish. And my grandfather, quoting a proverb, said to me, God invented whiskey to keep the Irish from taking over the world. (laughs) That and Guinness, I think. And then there's this phrase, acting the maggot. Have you ever heard that? Well, you use this to describe someone who is being foolish, or to show your impatience when something you are waiting on should be done quickly, you can say, they're acting the maggot. Use that in line at Walmart next chance that you get. (laughs) What's the crack? I learned that one from Niall Scally. He was on the phone with his sister in Dublin. He picked up the phone and he greeted her by saying, hello, what's the crack? It means, essentially, what's going on? How are you? Tell me what's been happening in your life. What's the crack? So many North American applications that I'll just let play. I was asked this question sitting in the Dufferin pub in Killyleigh, Northern Ireland, a few years ago. Which foot do you dig with? It was asked by this young man in the middle. His name is Artie. And he actually said it like this. Which foot do you dig it? (laughs) And even when I finally understood what he asked me, I didn't know how to answer. (laughs) Dear, uh, Dear Artie there in that home village of mine, my, I was the first McBrayer to go back there in hundreds of years, since, since the 1730s. They recognize me. And uh, <laughs> this is Ernie and Artie and Austin. And while we were in Northern Ireland, we stayed at the Dufferin Inn, which was the only place in Killilee, a village of a 1,000 people, to stay. And we, Cindy and I, would go out and launch our Irish adventures during the day, and we'd come back home to the Dufferin every night and there in the Dufferin, of course, is a pub. It's a village of a thousand people. There were seven pubs. And uh, they called it Suffering at the Dufferin. And we would go suffer there every night with, with these. And the person not included in this picture, Billy, is a man named Billy O'Connell. He was a nice guy. He, he, loved, he loved North American Appalachian bluegrass music. Uh, and he played stand-up bass in the dining area there. So... Uh, I thought he might be your cousin or something, but anyway, Artie grew up during the Troubles, the 1960s and 70s and 80s, that terrible war in Northern Ireland that didn't end until 1998, and they were exhausted by war. And the phrase, what foot do you dig with, 
is a code word in Northern Ireland for are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? I did not learn which was right or left. And I dared not told anybody in that country what I did for a living. <laughs> there are a few Irish blessings, toasts, and that sort of thing. May your neighbors respect you, trouble neglect you, the angels protect you, and heaven accept you. A good laugh and a long sleep are the two best cures in the world. Here's a favorite. Here's to you and yours, and to mine and ours. And if mine and ours ever come across you and yours, I hope you and yours will do as much for mine and ours as mine and ours have done for you and yours. <laughs> May you be in heaven a full half hour before the devil knows you're dead. And later today, as you down pints of beer somewhere, you can yell out to your friends, Toer Pogdo is Arime. Kiss me, I am Irish. There you go. And of course, the most famous Irish blessing begins, May the road rise. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face, the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of of his hand. You do a little research and you discover that this blessing is sometimes directly associated with St. Patrick, that possibly he wrote it. That's not likely, but it's still a good thought. Others say that it is an adaptation of an even older Gaelic or Celtic blessing, and some say it's rather modern, modern by Irish standards, about a thousand years or so. What is agreed upon is, is that it is originally from that Emerald Island. It is from Ireland, and it has lasted all of these centuries because of its simplicity and because of its beauty. You say it for others with a toast in your hand. You send it on a card printed for a friend. You might even buy a book with that blessing as the inspiration for the title. I don't know. A book of daily devotionals by someone you might know who has Irish ancestry, whose books are available at Amazon.com and respectable booksellers everywhere. <laughs> shameless, shameless, shameless. Regardless, it endures because it communicates our best intentions for others, for those that we love, and for ourselves. It doubles as a personal prayer, really. May the road rise up to meet you. May your journey succeed. That's what we're saying. May your path be clearly marked. May you find your way in this world with all the love and blessing that you can stand. It's a worthy prayer because so often we have no idea which way we're going, do we? We don't know where the road leads. We listen for God's voice, a divine nudge in one direction or the other, but it's all white noise and silent. So we stumble about for as long as we can, but we might even find ourselves sitting down alongside the road, maybe, and there we wait for some direction. A fellow traveler to come by and to show us the way. A bus to pick us up. A heavenly sent Uber to take us to our intended destination. But even then, if such a thing happened, what would you tell the driver? What is the destination? It's hard to arrive at where you are going when you don't know exactly where it is. 
you were going. Did you hear that in the text this morning? Verses 8 and 9, I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find God. I do not see him in the north, he is hidden. I look to the south, but he is concealed. These two are the words of a saint, a saint far older than Patrick. He's one of the oldest saints we know of. His name, as you've been introduced to him already, is Job. Job probably lived during the time of Abraham. That means what we read here today are words that are more than 4,000 years old. And his story would have been shared orally, mouth to ear, over the centuries until finally there was the technology and the ability to write it down. How could such a story survive all these years, you might ask? Well, that is because it is a story about theodicy. This theodicy. Not the odyssey, that's Homer. Not idiocy, although Job's book can stray into that from time to time. The odyssey. It addresses a singular question. How can there be a good benevolent, all-powerful God when there is so much evil and injustice in the world. Now you know why the story of Job has endured and why the life of Job has been preserved for us because it asks the age-old question, a question as old as spirituality and religion itself. Theodicy is the word for that quandary. An easier description, a one-word question we have all asked is simply, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why have I suffered this sickness, this death, this great irreplaceable loss when I didn't deserve it? When I was doing what I know, I know was right. Through the story of a young man named Glenn Chambers. Chambers was a New Yorker who, in the immediate years after the Second World War, made plans to become a career missionary in South America. He intended to join HCJB, which still broadcasts in Ecuador today, the Voice of the Andes Mountains. It was the first radio station in Ecuador, the first Christian missionary radio station in the world. And he was going there as a career missionary to work. February 15, 1947, he got on a plane bound for Quito, a plane that never arrived. It crashed into the side of El Tablazo, a massively high mountain in the Andes. Everyone on board was killed. Moments before he left the Miami airport, he jotted a note to his mother back home. All he could find to write on was a piece of advertising paper that was blank on the back side. And so he scribbled his message to his mother, folded it up, and put it into an envelope, and mailed it. By either accident or providence, Chambers had picked up an advertisement with a single word on the other side. In bold black letters, all caps, it was the word, why? And when his mother received the message from her now dead son and opened the envelope, the first thing that she saw was not his hand scribbles, It was that one word question staring at her as if it was a voice from the grave. Why? Have you ever asked that question? Many times, I would say. Job had lost everything. 
All his goats and his cows, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but it was the very means of wealth in the ancient Middle East. They were all stolen one morning, and his farmhands were murdered by thieves. A lightning strike, fire from heaven, killed his sheep and all of his shepherds. Raiders rode across his homestead and stole all of his camels. He had ten children. They were at the oldest son's house having a party, and a tornado struck the home and killed everyone inside. And that all happened on a single morning before lunch. Days later, Job loses his health. He is struck with some ulcerating disease. His skin becomes an open wound. His joints are burning with fire. And he sits down to grieve in the ashes of what used to be his life. And then his friends arrive. Thank God for good friends. Amen? You wouldn't thank God for these boys. Job's comforters. They arrive and do you know what they ask? Why? Why has this happened to you, Job? Why has this happened to our friend? But then they had an answer. Job, you must have done something terrible for God to do this to you. You've done something wrong for tragedy to descend upon you like this. A good person wouldn't be suffering like you are suffering now. And the way they saw it, being the Easterners that they were, was karmic. Your deeds have caught up with you. You are suffering because you are a sinner. But hold the phone. The opening line to the book of Job is this. There once was a man named Job. He was blameless. A man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Whatever Job is suffering... And for whatever the reason, is not because of what he had done or not done. No reason is given. Forty-two excruciating chapters of suffering, questions, dialogue between Job, his friends, and yes, finally God. And never is there an explanation. God rebukes Job's friends for piling on for blaming Job for his troubles, for their victim shaming, but not once is there an answer provided to the question of why. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Sometimes karma itself goes off the rails. The best of people can suffer the worst injustice, while the worst of people never get the comeuppance they deserve. It's no wonder we sit dazed and confused in the middle of the road wondering what to do next. There just aren't any guarantees that things will work out right no matter which way you go or which path you choose. And returning to Job, I think he knew this. In verse 10, he speaks of God, this elusive, indescribable being, and he says this, but he knows where I am going. And when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold, for I have stayed on God's paths. I have followed his ways and not turned aside. So here's an answer, not to the question of why, but to the question of what. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And the question of where. Where do you go 
when you don't know which way to go? And the answer is, you just keep going. You keep moving. You keep doing. This is Job at his very best. He has no answers, only questions. He has no comfort, only sorrow. He has no direction, only the immediate path that is beneath his feet. The road rises up to meet him there. And with one foot in front of the other, he walks on. A step at a time, a stubborn contrary inch at a time, but he keeps at it. With what feels like concrete around his ankles, a heavy bag of, bag of question marks on his back, tears streaming down his face with all the speed of a slug. But he presses on. Forget this stuff about the patience of Job. There is no such thing. He complained. He raged. He shook his fists at heaven. He demanded and vented his frustrations. He was not patient. Far from it. But he persevered. He did not quit. Even though he had no idea where he was going. That is faith. Faith is not not having all the answers. There are no answers to some things. It is not knowing every step of the way. It is not being protected from all trouble. It is not being too blessed to be stressed or whatever the latest Christian t-shirt is. Faith might be simple, but it is not naive. Its eyes are open. It sees the world for what it is. It knows there are no shortcuts, no easy fixes, no silver bullets. There is only tenacity. There is only going on, moving on, and keeping on. There is only the pressing forward to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us, the Apostle Paul said. Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk who, since his untimely death 50 years ago, has become a spiritual master and teacher for many of us. He had a prolific mind. He wrote volumes of books, articles, devotionals over his much too short life. His favorite subjects were prayer, justice for the poor, peace, both inwardly and outwardly, and the inner faith understanding that must take place in our world if our world is going to survive its differences. And we are reminded just this week of a monstrous example that occurred in Christchurch, New Zealand. That if we don't learn to live together as human beings, we will destroy our world. Burton's mother died when he was only a child. And afterward, his eccentric father moved him all over the world. He never had a place to call home for very long. He had this bottomless emptiness inside because of that. Those feelings only intensified when his father died before he was even 18 years of age. So as Merton came of age, he was drinking heavy. He was partying. He was promiscuous. He thought he might join the Communist Party. And he was essentially self-destructing. Broken by his anxiety, broken by his rage about how his life had been so unfair, shamed by his own actions, looking for some kind of direction, he turned to Christ in his early 20s. 
He was baptized and at 27 years of age became a monk at the Trappist Monastery in Bardstown, Kentucky, where he would remain for 27 more years the rest of his life and where today he is buried. He found a home, a place to belong, a way forward. His words written from, the, from a little shack there have guided millions on the road as it rises to meet them. This is one of his more well-known devotional readings. I love it. I hope you will too. I have not included the text because I don't want you to read it. I want you simply to hear it. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust in you always, though I may seem to be lost. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And that is my prayer for each of you.